Welcome to Finding Home. I'm Scott Harris, your host. Here, we start with a simple question. What does home mean to you? For 20 years, I've been immersed in the residential properties that speak to buyers and sellers in New York City. And I've discovered that home is much more than brick and mortar. Home really means discovering your true calling. I speak with passionate entrepreneurs, creators, and leaders about what drives and inspires them to follow their dreams and makes the world a better place. You know, I started this podcast because I wanted to celebrate people who have found their passions and put them to use in a number of different ways. For this episode, I got to sit down for a second time with Liam Elkind, and it happens to be Mother's Day week, when, of course, moms should be celebrated Every week, every day, this is a really fun episode to share. Um, by the way, a quick shout out to Cecile Kerr, who is a member of my team, who had originally introduced me to Liam two years ago as we were looking for uplifting stories amidst, amidst the quarantine for our Instagram live series. But Liam answered the question that a lot of people ask themselves, how can one person make a difference? You know, What makes Liam special to me is that he figured it out a little earlier than most people do during his sophomore year of college. Um, as the pandemic rolled in, he launched Invisible Hands with an idea that it might be nice to help older people who were at risk with tasks, you know, helping older people while they were hunkered down. And we talk about the genesis of the organization, how it really became an organization. And what I love about all of these conversations I get to have is, is that we learn about the iterations, the tweaks, the idea of having an idea throwing it out there, jumping over a ravine and building the bridge as you go. Um, so many people look at amazing things like what Liam did and his family and his team, everything that they built, how he had to take time off of college to lean all the way into this. They look at his Yale degree. They look at winning his winning the Rhodes Scholarship and think, well, he just had it all figured out. Um, but what they don't realize is just how messy and how incremental all of this work is. Along the way, the insights, the figure it out as you go mentality that's true of almost every initiative, every business, and really every life. We talk about here about some of the luck that helped Invisible Hands blow up, which is really great, including a helping hand from actress Blake Lively and even Bernie Sanders. And bringing it back to politics, we also talk about what seems to be at the heart of Liam's why which is just standing up and taking action in the face of setbacks, uh, it, certainly in politics, and he, when he saw some things that he didn't really like. And really, one person can make a real difference by taking a stand. And even more than that, we talk about public-private partnerships, which to me seems like the most effective way to get things done, taking the financial resources of public institutions and adding in the flexibility and ingenuity of people like Liam. It's a fun conversation. Liam's amazing. By the way, offline, we talk about the pronunciation of his last name, which is was really fun. You know, I have an easy last name to pronounce, Harris, but others don't. Is it Elkin? Is it Elkind? Uh, it's, his family doesn't agree about it, with it which is really funny, um, but probably expected. Families don't disagree about a lot of things, but he's a great guy. It was a thrill to get to talk to him. I hope you enjoy learning a bit more about the birth and growth of Invisible Hands, and I hope it inspires you. Thanks a lot. We 
are back with Finding Home. And today I have with me Liam Elkind. Liam, how are you today, man? I'm doing fantastic. This nice. We got a little background music. This is like the podcast theme stuff. So we'll, you know, we don't have to keep it on for that long, but it's fun to start with it. Gets people attention. Oh my God, I'm here. Um, well, where are you today? Total You're vibe. somewhere in New Haven. Is that, is that right? I am in oh, Morningside Heights. In like New York. we might as just well have just done this in person. That's just ridiculous. I'm yeah. Next time. Next it's, time. Uh, I'm, I'm down the street. I'm down Riverside drive on a hundred and hundred and second street. So oh my God. we're buddies. We're buddies and neighbors. Oh, I'm, I'm at 112th nice. so come, and Broadway. We'll, come have, uh, we'll, we'll meet and have some, uh, some community food and juice at some point in the near term. Well, you're, I know we're not here to talk about New York City restaurants, although maybe we'll get to it in a, in a minute. But Liam, you, you and I met two years ago during this quarantine time when everybody was sitting around and you had this uh, idea of launching something called Invisible Hands. And um, I was blown away by buy it your and we'll we'll talk about it but I, I want to dive in why don't I guess why don't we start why don't you tell us a little bit about invisible hands and then we'll back up how's that sounds great yeah uh, invisible hands is a two-year-old nonprofit that I began with a couple friends uh, in March 2020 when I was a junior in college to bring food and medicine to folks who were stuck at home as a result of the pandemic you know, the elderly, the immunocompromised, the sick, people with disabilities, people experiencing food insecurity. And so it was just a way to, to get some people together who were young, who had some time on their hands uh, to, to get out there and do some good in their community. And the response was just bonkers. <laughs> you know, I thought this was going to be a spring break project to get some food to people in the neighborhood. And 72 hours after launching, we had 1,300 volunteers signed up. Now over 12,000 people have signed up over the course of the past two years. We've gotten you know, a ton of national traction, been able to hire staff, been able to expand our services. And as the pandemic has worn on, really expanded beyond just delivering to people who are stuck at home, who you know, need a delivery service, and really trying to tackle this bigger issue of food insecurity more broadly. So working with food pantries, mutual aid groups, religious institutions, places that have food or funding, that we can then go out and leverage our people power to deliver to those who need it most. One of the most striking and, and horrifying statistics about food insecurity is the fact that three quarters of people who could make use of a food pantry don't go due to logistical challenges or scheduling issues or even social stigma, right? People don't want to be seen as being in need. And so what we try to do is provide a safe and efficient and anonymous delivery system for folks to prioritize their safety and their dignity and their valuable well, time. Well, I'm just going to like, you just dropped the mic, essentially is what happened there. I'm just like reeling with awe, blown away. Um, I want to talk, okay, so now that we, we've gotten that out of the way and we'll, we'll come back to it in a second. Yeah. You grew up in New York. We're talking about Upper West Side, which is already known as you know, a, very, a place that has a lot of supportive housing that's really thinking about the community. Were your, you grew up in New York. I mean, were your, were your parents volunteers? Was this something that, that started at home as a kid? You know, my dad is a medical worker and my mom is a children's book writer and has devoted her life to uplifting and telling the stories of others. And I think that I always knew growing up that 
it was important for me not necessarily to, to volunteer specifically as an act, but to be of service, right? To, to actively look for problems in my community and do what I could to solve them. And that was something... Were you, like, when you were around, was this like, did your friends know that your mom was writing books or these, you know, did you end up sharing some of the books with your friends and, 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 <laughs> you know, well, growing up, I was a really, really anxious kid. I, I remember, I mean, my mom always tells the story that I would, you know, our kindergarten was going out there and singing this little light of mine. And I was way too scared to go out and sing it to the parents. And so I stood behind the curtain with Mrs. Lebov, um, just holding her hand and sobbing the whole time. Um, and I, I didn't know really, I, I didn't want to leave my mom's side and to leave that protective cocoon. I just had this really bad anxiety. Um, but what I've learned through Invisible Hands and through some of the other work that I've done is, you know, when what you're doing is important enough, you have to get over your fear, whether that's stage fright or social anxiety or just the, the fear of failure, right? That when what you're doing feels important and when you know you can have an impact, you, you got to push through it well, because it's worth I mean, it. Clearly... I mean, I would guess that this wasn't the first time you broke through your anxiety. It was When was the first time as a kid when you realized, okay, there's something that's important enough to <laughs> step through that? Um, the first time was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a younger brother, and I thought growing up that my older brother, he's five years older than me, you know, I thought he hung the moon. Um, and he was super okay. into theater. And so anything he did was automatically the, the coolest thing anybody can do, right? So I wanted to be involved in theater, but I had, you know, terrible, terrible stage fright. And so in third grade, I was in a production of Midsummer Night's Dream. third grade? And I was playing Bottom. Yeah. Weird, you know, New York that's, City. That's pretty intense. <laughs> okay, we'll uh, do a little Shakespeare at eight years old. What was, were you reading yeah. Shakespeare or was it some kind of different... Well, so my brother is also okay. super into Shakespeare, and so I went to Shakespeare okay. camp growing up, which if you haven't heard of that, Google it. It's one of the weirdest, <laughs> most exhilarating things I've ever done. Camp. Um, There's some Shakespeare yeah, yeah, in the yeah. park um, in the summer here. There's some wonderful Shakespeare, not, yes. not just at the, the, the theater there, but like an act. There's a company that does it in different spots around, which I, we'll put it in the show notes. It's like a, an amazing organization that, that does all sorts of public, like on the lawn and like around there's a there's a pond up uh, uh in the upper part of central park where they they do these productions and, and they did it all the way through covid but anyway i i digress no no it's it's amazing it's one of the the things i love about new york is the the theatrical community and the devotion to pulling people together through the arts but but anyway um you know that that was the first time i really broke through my stage fright uh was just coming on stage to perform um probably, honestly, for, for my brothers and my family's approval. Um, but once I learned to, to be able to do it, that was when I started thinking about, you know, how can I channel this into something productive? And so, you know, I did volunteer work as a kid, um, but I didn't do anything particularly uh, impactful or scalable, let's say, until after the, the 2016 election. And I don't know the, the politics of your listeners, but, you know, as a New Yorker, um, I, was, I was pretty shocked by the outcome of the election. And I remember going into school the next day and, uh, you know, my, my English teacher realizing that we were not going to get to the book that day. I was a senior in high school. She said, all right, I want everyone to go around the room and say one thing that you're excited about for the future. And at that point, I was pretty dejected. I just said, pass, go to the next person. But there was this one girl who said, I'm excited to get more involved in politics. And I thought damn straight. 
you know, that, that that is what you do when you feel threatened and bullied and like you've lost, that you get back in the game and you keep fighting. And it doesn't need to be politics, right? It just needs to be something of use, some way to make people's lives better. That's what's valuable. And so I, I wanted to be an actor probably because I, you know, I, I wanted to make, you know, the, the artistic side of my family proud and, and it was something that gave me great joy. But to be able to then channel it into something public service oriented felt like the, the best way to make use of, of my talents and my interests and align them with the world's greatest needs. And so that was really when I, I began well, that path. You know, you, you talked about, okay, you were volunteering and like you thought it was of maybe less consequence or something. I mean, when you started Invisible Hands, you thought this would be like a small project. It's, it doesn't seem like that the, the impact... Uh, if it's not scalable or something like that, that it doesn't mean it's important, not important to the person who's receiving it. Right. Um, and, and it's that philosophy that my parents taught me of if everyone does a little, no one has to do a lot, right. That we don't need to all go out there and try to save the world or change the world. That's not what this is about. This is about solving a problem. Right. And if we can focus on, solving a problem. That's something everybody can do. And so that message to me was always really uh, empowering. And it was something my parents really emphasized growing up. It's something I think the city of New York inculcated in me growing up. Um, and it's something that I hope to, to be able to convince other people of, that we don't need a ton of money or a huge Instagram following to be able to make an impact. We just need What's to drive. The, I'm going to totally botch the quote, but it's... it's, it's um... It's not your job to finish the work. It's but you you have to do your part. It's it's we're gonna of course we're gonna we're gonna find it later and go okay this is this is the quote. I mean we could probably pause here. Let's just do that. We can I mean it's recording so we can just give me a second. It's uh, I'm gonna find this quote right now. Um, here it's it, it's it's a it's a in in. Pirkei Avot, which is a, uh, it's not your duty to finish the work. This is Rabbi Tarfan. It's not your duty to finish the work, but neither are you at liberty to neglect it. So that's, that's what it is. It's essentially, I mean, I think it's, it's essentially you've got a, you've got, if you see a need, we're going to edit this, by the way, you can, you, we, we have fun with all this. Um, <laughs> great, great. If you see a need and you, you need to dive in and, and do it, it doesn't mean that you have to finish it or do it perfectly or anything else. But, but if you know that it's something that has to get done and you neglect it, that's the problem. It's not, yeah. it's, it, yeah. you do what you can. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. And to your question about my parents, you know, uh, in the early days of the pandemic, my dad, who's a doctor, he was going to work every day and we were really worried about the health of our family during a really profoundly scary time. And I said to him, why, why are you doing this? Why are you going in every day? You know, you could get sick. And he said, this is my job. And he didn't mean this is my profession or this is how I earn a paycheck. He meant this is my moral responsibility. This is my duty to do this work. My mom has been an amazing support. Uh, source of support for Invisible Hands, you know, uh, and has done just a ton of work on the back end, helping coordinate people, uh, running out and doing deliveries herself, um, 
helping us with some of our back-end office, you know, systems, um, despite the fact that she herself is asthmatic and in a high, uh, you know, in a, in a vulnerable class of people. But she's done it because she knows that it's her responsibility and that it's her duty to help her community when called upon I, to do I so. I wanted to dive into it, you know, just the, the kind of the, the creation piece, you know, when you came up with the idea real specifically about invisible hands, like what was the your own background in terms of, okay, I'm going to bring together this and this and this, you know, what, what exactly was the structure when it first started? Yeah. The, the structure when it first started was, was largely non-existent. Gotta be honest. Um, right. When, as you, you know, as you built right. like the, the, when you yeah. went from zero to 1300 volunteers in three days, like what, what did that look like? A lot of sleepless okay. nights. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll start by saying, you know, the, the ethos of, the organization came partially from the lessons I got from my parents, but I do think also largely from being a New Yorker because I was two years old on September 11th and I don't remember the day itself, but I remember the stories that my mom told me about the days that followed about trying to buy meals for firefighters in the grocery store and the cashier saying, nice try lady. They've already been paid for 10 times over. Right stories about communities coming together when the easier thing would have been to pull apart and to turn inward. Stories about people who instead chose to turn outward and help each other out. And so I went to high school in the non-existent shadow of those Twin Towers, right, downtown in, in, uh, at Stuyvesant. And I, I knew that when the time called, I would have to be there. And I think that there's something to that ethos of pulling together to pull through that uh, initiated the spark of Invisible Hands. Once we started recruiting volunteers and realized that the pandemic was going to be a long-term issue, that our volunteers were interested and in it for the long-term, that's when we really started to operationalize what we were doing, right? To find the people who were giving all of themselves, not just you know running out and doing a delivery here and there, but really willing and able to devote huge chunks of time to the organization, we started deputizing them, right, to handle, all right, you're going to handle dispatch and you're going to handle the call center because the initial flyer had my personal phone number on it and then thousands of people start like, calling well, my phone on, number. Hang on, So in the first, uh, I don't, I want to keep the horses in the front, you know, I, I want to, you know, and put the cart in the back. Like you, you started with a flyer. So talk to me. What was that? What was yeah. that? Um. Yeah, so we started like by literally posting, posting flyers, flyers around, around town, the neighborhood. Literally posting flyers yeah. around the neighborhood with my personal phone number on it, saying, "You know, are you elderly or immunocompromised? Do you need help getting your food? Call Liam or Simone, my co-founder at the time. Um, you know, and and we put okay. our personal phone number. So you on figured it. I'm going to be running around a little bit, dropping off medication, you know, doing a little shopping. Yeah. Like, oh, this is this delivering will be to cute. the grandmas right. at the like, Upper West Side. Oh, you know, you're such a sweet young man. That kind of thing." <laughs> Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, um, and we put out the call to action for volunteers on social media. We reached out to a did couple you of... create an Instagram account or you just did it through your own Instagram and said, I'm, I'm launching this thing. If you want to help, please do. Kind of let DM me. Yeah. I mean, at the time, we didn't even have a name for the organization, right? We, we didn't even know if we were building an organization. We didn't know what we were doing. We You're were just, just like, ah, we're, we're, we got time on our hands and... 
we think that we have this idea that there are a bunch of little grannies who are like freaking, you know, freaking out about leaving the house. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it was scary. You know, I, I talked to people at the grocery store who were saying how, how scared they were to go out. And it was scary. Risk. Yeah. It was scary. You were like, didn't know what was going on. Right. Yeah. And sure. so we passed around some flyers, you know, posted on, on Facebook and on Instagram and, um, you know, did some local outreach. And then 72, days, 72 hours later, we had 1,300 people signed up. And these are the, the volunteer side. These are the volunteers. Okay. Yeah. So, so you, have the, you have the workforce That's now right. built. Right. And, and you're... And so then you've got to find the people. That's right. So the other half of the platform are people who actually needed right. 1,300 people. So 1,300 people are in a database or like... Google, Google like spreadsheets. A, like a Google, everything's Google. Okay, everything's so a Google, Google spreadsheet. Okay. And, and, and then, huge shout out to my brother and his roommates who are working day and night to you know, train these new volunteers, onboard them, figure out where they should go. It was okay. literally run out of a Brooklyn apartment by my brother and his very generous roommates. So when so in terms of organizing all these people into like a spreadsheet, yeah. you you created like a Google Doc or something so that people could say I like doing this, this is where I live, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So on okay. the on the form and, on and, our website. Okay, so you so the Google form happened, and your brother, they were helping with that, or this is something like you and Simone. So so Simone and I created it, and then you know then we started getting all these donations at the same time over over Venmo. You know what I mean? They're because Venmoing you personally. They're like, Venmoing I want to help. Personally. Here's 10 bucks. Thanks so much for doing this. This is a great idea kind of thing. Right. Because initially, as, as you just said, the idea was, you know, yeah, we'll get a couple, you know, we'll get 10 bucks here, 20 bucks there. That'll be great. We didn't even know if we wanted to allow the website to take donations because it costs an extra five bucks a month or something. Right. And then once we started getting hundreds and then thousands of dollars into our personal bank accounts, we start They're thinking, like, well, Oh, okay. no. And a lawyer told us, hey, this is taxable income. Right. And we're like, oh, no. Yeah, right. All of a sudden, we got to magically create a 501c3 in the next five minutes. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Okay. So you, so you, you are surprised by the, so far, you've still got like the, every single person is sitting around like, I'd love to help. Yeah. And, and if I can't help with my, with my, you know, actual body, I'm going to throw some money at this too. Right. And then- how did you build out, when did you, what was the idea for how actually telling people that you were here to help? Yeah. Well, you know how I mentioned my personal phone number was on that flyer? Yes. So Blake Lively put that flyer on her Instagram story to her okay. however million, uh, however many million followers. Okay. Okay. And then um, it was in Elle Magazine, that flyer. And then Bernie Sanders emails out my personal phone number to his entire email list and says, call this number if you need free food. Now, it doesn't specify New York City. <laughs> doesn't specify, you know, grocery deliveries. doesn't specify, hey, this is a 20-year-old, by the way. Make sure you don't inundate him with thousands of calls. Just call this number if you need free food. Oh, my God. So did you transfer, you must have transferred the number to some other thing so that it didn't, like, your voicemail box wasn't full or whatever. Oh, it was full many times over. And oh my god! Yeah. So and Blake. So it's not like grandmas are following Blake Lively on on her Instagram. <laughs> someone, but, you know, at, someone in Bernie Sanders' office somebody, was. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Unbelievable. So, so how? What was the? You had thirteen hundred volunteers and clear, you know, money rolling in. And then when did that happen? In the timeline, like a week later, two weeks later. Yeah, that was. I mean, it's all such a blur. Um, right. But about within those first, you know, couple it was weeks. intense because there were people were like. All, they were like looking over everything like a hawk, right. trying to figure out like 
what can be done. Right. So this kind of thing was tailor made for that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and, so and you know, it's there, a, it's a reminder of the power of grassroots organizing and of the interest yeah. of everyday people. But I think it was also a pretty profound um, indictment of our government infrastructure that for the first two months of the pandemic, if you called the New York City hotline, the 311 hotline, and said, I need food, they said, yeah, we can't help you. Call Invisible Hands. Our yeah, social well, safety I mean, it net... Speaks, it speaks to the power of public-private partnership, for certainly. sure. I mean, it's definitely... Um, I, I agree that the government doesn't always do everything well on its own. Right. And I think that that's... I've spoken to a lot of people who are involved in philanthropy, and I think this is what philanthropy is like perfect for, to be yeah. nimble yeah. and to take the, the, the resources of government and really help it yes. find the right place so that the they aren't reinventing the wheel and that you know an organization like yours can be more nimble yes um and and really and 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 be more um ta- uh what's the word not tailored but like more laser focused more targeted yeah but um, you know look our yeah. sa- our social safety net shouldn't depend on a 20-year-old college student remembering to pick up his phone right like and so I, I agree that the power of philanthropy and, you know, startup nonprofits to move money where it's most needed in the moment is incredible and inspiring. But we also need government programs, larger philanthropic institutions to help take those programs to scale. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, let's let's do this. Let's I'd like to zoom out a little bit. Yeah. And and before we uh, before we go from like the, you know, the the broad to the particular, because I, I want to get into, because you kind of went from wanting to help in politics to kind of helping grassroots like this, and then you kind of zoomed. I'm, I'm curious, and I want to talk about that in a bit, but I, I, first I want to talk about the idea of like helping versus people, helping people help themselves, you know, and in this case, I mean, the, the example I'll give right now is that my wife through her, through her community, when we first were in this together, we were also on the Upper West Side, you know, there was a woman, just one, who needed um, to order food, right? She needed to order delivery. And within a couple of times, my wife said, you know what, the more powerful thing to do is to go and help her, guide her through shopping online, ordering delivery. And so, you know, through what you were doing, how much of this, how, was, how much did Invisible Hands ultimately um, were there volunteers that were helping people kind of get themselves more self-sufficient through this or was it, uh, did it, was it really a lot of delivery, um, again and again, just out of curiosity, how did that, how did that play out? Yeah, no, I, I love that question. And I think it speaks to the broader sense of what we're trying to do, which is to build stronger communities through these deliveries, right? We don't want to just be a a package at your door, right? We want to address, um, other needs and and the needs that can't be addressed otherwise, right? And so we also try to address that emotional hunger of social isolation by providing a friendly face on the other side of the door. Um, You know, for instance, I got an email from a woman who lived in Michigan, and her dad was 83, lived alone in New York, and was diagnosed with COVID. And he had nowhere to turn. He didn't have any friends. He didn't have anyone living with him. And so she heard about us on Good Morning America and submitted a request 
and his volunteer would deliver to him each week, drop off food, drop off medicine, and then they would sit on either side of his door, and they would just talk about their lives and their fears and their joys. And she said they never saw each other, right? They wouldn't have recognized each other if they passed on the street one day, but they became friends. And he passed away from COVID. But she said that the help and relief and reassurance that this perfect stranger was able to provide at a time when his own daughter couldn't be there for him meant the world. And so to your question, this is not about me or anybody riding in on their white horse to save somebody else. This is about mutual aid, about the notion that we all have something to offer one another and we all have something we can receive from one another, whether that's food, whether that's medicine, whether that's uh, you know supplies or food from a food pantry or even just a simple act of friendship. We can all offer something to someone else and we all have needs that can be filled by other people. And so, for instance, you know, one of the people who was on the receiving end um, ended up uh, teaching, he was a philosophy professor, a retired philosophy professor, and he ended up teaching a virtual class on the meaning of life to our volunteers. And so we were able to talk about the meaning of life and come to even broader conclusions about why it was so important that we were doing this kind of work. And so that notion of everyone helping everyone uh, is what has powered me through the last two incredibly difficult years. Um, so we, we have done deliveries. We've helped people uh, come out of the situation where they need to call us just simply because they can't navigate technology. But we're also always there for people who feel like they need us because we trust that you know what's best for you and we want to be there for you. Yeah. Um, it, it's when you were talking about people on either side of the door, I really hope you've spent, you've been busy enough that you've missed this show on Netflix called Love is Blind. <laughs> I've, I've, seen the, I've seen the trailer. You've probably heard of it, but this seems like a, a much more um, more interesting <laughs> uh, people on other, each side of the door, you know, having a, having a real relationship. But yeah. um, I love that. Um, talk to me about <coughs> you, you were maybe before... Well, let's just say you took a year off of school, right, in the midst of this because you got so busy with it. And you've been presumably, you know, in the weeds, you know, growing the organization. I think you mentioned before that everything sort of migrated over to like a Slack channel. And you would say, hey, we have a need for like somebody to go do this. And you'd have like, okay, it's booked. You know, like instantly somebody would say yes to that. Um and then, you know, at some point you were saying, you know, you, you started to, when did you start to zoom out a little bit and say, okay, this organization is here and we need to hire some folks. And, you know, cause when I saw you, know, when we spoke two years ago, you were still knee deep in it. When did it start to get some legs as an organization that you could, um, you could actually bring more people in? Yeah. Were you getting funding from government organizations or is it strictly private donations? Like how did that all come together? We are something like 85% grassroots funded. Um, okay. And so that is something that I love and cherish about the organization and its spirit. Uh, I would also encourage those of you out there listening who like our work to, to help us out. Oh, for sure. We'll definitely make sure people can find the places to donate in the show notes. For sure. Appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. Of course. Um, 
but you know, we were also yes, we've partnered with you know Robin Hood Foundation, which is one of the biggest anti-poverty foundations in the city. Um, we got funding from the New York City Mayor's Office. We've been really lucky to work with huge organizations like Lyft that provide us with Lyft codes, so that our volunteers can go out there and deliver long distances, even if they don't have a car. Um, we work with TaskRabbit. They do incredible work, making sure that uh, that they can send their people out to do tasks for folks. Um, our fiscal sponsor, Giving Back Fund, helped us route donations. So it's been this incredible process of working with both corporate and community partners to to funnel their resources and their skills and their talents in the direction of a common cause. Incredible. So has your opinion, I mean, look, you were you, you came out of 2016 election pretty disillusioned. You're like, all right, I got to do something about, you know, through politics and campaign reform and you know, all of that. Yeah. And then you stepped into this. I mean, has your opinion of how to impact the world changed at all? Hmm. I think that it's what I was saying earlier, I suppose, of <laughs> I think that as a young person, I often felt uh, the the weight of these huge ambitious goals of changing the world, right? People talk about, you know, oh, these young leaders, they're going to change the world. And that's you know, fine and noble as a goal, but it's also kind of empty and uh, overambitious and too broad. What I've learned, I think more than anything, has been the importance of solving a problem because that is one of the most empowering things to me is the knowledge that I don't, I don't know what the right policy answer is necessarily. I don't know what the right uh, answer is on a broad systemic level on every issue. And these are complex issues, but I know that I can solve problems for people. And if someone tells me what a problem is, I can do some creative strategic thinking to process how I can address that need for someone else. That, to me, is the most powerful, most uh, empowering thing that I can do to, for someone in need. Nice. Um, I wanted to ask you about sort of differing... I guess your volunteer profile is everybody, right? I mean, you've people have all... Um, all sorts of different you know, walks of life and ages and everything else. But you're coming out of college now. Do you find that your, your colleagues, your classmates are, you know, you're leading them on, you're leading them off campus. You know, are, are they of a mind similar to yours that, that they're, are they more engaged in this work in some way? Or are you finding I guess I'd just love for you to describe how you how you find your classmates and how they've engaged in this work now that you 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 took a year off, you came back on campus and you've been yeah, you know, riding out your senior year. What has that experience been like? It's been a little weird. Um mostly because so I, I took a year off from school to do this work full time. I came back to Yale for my senior year and realized, you know what? I don't wanna just be sitting in class anymore because now my eyes have been opened to this huge need and this huge potential to address that need, right? I wanted to be in the real world. And so I accelerated and I, I finished a semester early. So this term, I'm, I'm back at Invisible Hands full-time volunteering. And it's amazing. And I'm really, really grateful for the friends of mine and the colleagues and classmates of mine who have rolled up their sleeves and gotten involved in this work. But I do feel sometimes that as a college student, there's a lot of thinking and a lot of pontification, which is important, don't get me wrong, it's often really removed from the day-to-day realities of people on the ground. And especially at a place where there are a lot of, you know, really rich folks 
and people who aren't necessarily personally impacted by uh, issues like food insecurity, it makes it difficult for people to grapple and contend with the harsh reality of the real world. And so doing Invisible Hands gives me the opportunity to work with people who are not necessarily as interested in the debating the philosophies of Plato and Aristotle, but are saying, there's someone out there who's hungry and I can help, that's what I'm going to do. So that action impulse has been a really new and interesting way to engage with the world that I didn't feel like I got in college. But to be able to couple kind of that uh, more pontificating, more theoretical approach with the actual action uh, is what's made the last year so exciting for me. Well, I guess you're, you're in a position where you have stories to tell by video and social media and whatever. I mean, how are you... Because this, the last two years have really been kind of uneven in terms of how, you know, the, the impact of that, it, that it's had on people. You, you do find that, like, the recovery, you know, in terms of who is making, who could make money during the pandemic, you know, was very uneven. You know, a lot of, a lot of workers, wage or workers were impacted more quickly and yeah. for more, uh, more uh, sustained time. And how are you communicating to the world, like, by the way, this is the problem. This is what we're doing. This is what we're seeing. I mean, clearly the work, a lot of the work is to let people know about the problem itself. Yeah. Yeah. And how are you, how are you going about doing that at the, uh, through the last couple of years? It's a lot of making sure that we are elevating the stories of those most impacted, right? That it is the idea behind the invisible of invisible hands that, you know, I get to be the, the front man for the organization and talk about it. And that's wonderful but it's not about me, right? It's about the invisible connection between people. And so we try as much as we can to elevate those stories like that of the you know 83-year-old gentleman who was able to make a friend, right? That's what's important here. And so it's by focusing on the stories of those most impacted, um, elevating their voices to the front of the scene that we can try to paint a realistic picture of how people are being impacted and then sell that story to those who have the, the financial means to really make a difference. And I, I'm sure you saw a lot of, you know, tumult in the in the real estate world as well with hugely unequal impact. Um, but it's only by, I think, elevating the stories of those who are suffering that we can begin to build empathy and try to address those needs. Well, I, I want to circle back to something you said very early on. when We were talking about people who were um, reluctant to ask for help. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, one of the biggest problems of, say, the opioid epidemic yeah. was kind of rooted in the same thing that the, that hit communities that were too proud yeah. to ask for help. Like, Oh my God, my, my child, my family member was addicted to opioids. Yeah. You know, here we are you know, people who are, you know, who need food, who are hungry, but too proud to ask for help and so on. Have you seen as that, have you somehow found ways to reach communities that prior to this were not, um, open to receiving help? We're trying. And it requires a lot of trust and uh, a degree of anonymity, but a huge degree of trust. And so what we do is we partner with community-based organizations and um, frontline uh, workers and elected officials, places that have, places and people who have built trust in the community over years, if not decades, of service. 
because as a two-year-old organization, it's really tough to go into a community that you don't necessarily belong to and say, hey, I'm here to help, right? right. That's a, it's that's, a little, right, to, you, you don't want to seem like that, right. that white knight, you know, coming in to save the, the superhero, coming to save the day. <laughs> exactly. Like you said before. And so, so we build those relationships. We try to get them to vouch for us by showing that we can be a reliable partner. And what's most important is we lead with listening, right? This is not me saying, here's how we're going to solve the problem. This is based on me doing a ton of listening to the people impacted by the work, the people doing the work, and hearing what are the needs in your life that, that we can solve. What do you think are the best ways that we can address those needs? And then working from there to build some solutions, right? Having those closest to the pain be closest to the power. That is how we have driven our work historically, and that's how we're going to keep growing it. Say that again, because it was really... Um, that last line that you're saying about pain and power, can you just, I want to hear that again because it yeah. was pretty powerful. Yeah. Well, it's, it's essential to have people who are closest to the pain be closest to the power, whether that is in our nonprofit or in our society broadly, writing the laws that impact and dictate the rules of our society, that those who are going to be most negatively impacted by uh, our societal and systemic inequity should be the people who are closest to the power to rectify that. Does Bernie Sanders know what he accidentally, uh, <laughs> what he did, what he, what the, the, the power he unleashed? <laughs> I have not for good the force for good he's unleashed on the world. I I have not yet had a conversation with him, but uh, my my phone bill uh, certainly does not thank him. But I I'm grateful for the opportunity to have expanded our our reach and to be able to to meet people where they are. Amazing. Um. So now, you know, you're you're. You're graduating and you're heading off to across the Atlantic yeah. to, uh, to, to pursue, a, a, you've got an Oxford, a Rhodes, uh, Rhodes scholarship here. What's going to happen? Are you, you're, you may not be the face, the full-time face of, of invisible hands. How does that, uh, what's that handoff look like? And what do you see for both invisible hands and for yourself yeah. going forward? You know, my goal, uh, for these next several months before I head off at the end of September is to make sure that the organization can continue its good work regardless of me. Because I'm really proud of the work that we've been able to do and that I've been able to do. But I also recognize, you know, as a 22-year-old, I, I, I also just don't have the, you know, the leadership experience that I think an organization of this size and scale should have. And so I'm cognizant of my own limitations and wanting to make sure that we have some more uh, long-term sustainable, scalable leadership. And so we're pursuing a few different paths, um, including, you know, hiring a new executive director to replace me or, um, you know, potentially some kind of, you know, partnership with a larger organization that can keep us funded in the long term. Um, so there's a lot of conversations going on in terms of, you know, what's the, the best way to keep our impact going. But my goal is to make sure that regardless of what happens with me, that the people we're serving can continue to be served and that the organization can continue to thrive. Thank you. And in, I know you say, okay, I'm 22 and I, you know, maybe there's some other leaders that have skills that I haven't figured out yet, but I've got to think over the last two years, you've learned quite a lot about leadership. Any, any particular lessons that jump out <laughs> to you that you've either made mistakes and figured out or, wow, I really did that pretty well. You know, I think that I'm certainly no expert, and I'm a perpetual student, um, and excited to be a student again in England. Um, 
But I think leadership begins with listening and it begins with learning, right? Whether that's literally taking classes on leadership, which I've done, or uh, listening to the people who you've delegated to do certain kinds of work. Um, I think it comes down to listening and then using what you've heard and having the intuition to make uh, often what is often a small number of critically important decisions and being able to communicate why that decision is the right one after uh, you know having received all the input of the information. Right? It's being able to say, here's where we are, here's where we want to go, here's how I'm going to get us there. And that ability to explain and to communicate effectively, I think, is one of the most important and uh, inspiring leadership skills that I'm still working on developing. Got it. Look, I'm sitting here listening. I think you got your good handle on these things. Did you get any unsolicited advice from surprising leaders out there who said, hey, Liam, let's, uh, you want to think about this? You want to think about this? Hey, mate, you want to consider this kind of thing? Somebody, people took an interest in what you were doing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, lots of, lots of unsolicited and solicited advice. I mean, I, I consider criticism and advice always solicited. I, as, as Hillary Clinton said, you know, I, I try to take criticism seriously, but not personally. Um, and that, that to me is... Did she, did she weigh in on your on that, the that was, here? She did, she did not say that to me personally, okay, I should clarify. Okay. That's <laughs> one, one of the things that she said that I, I, I really admire, that I, that I took to heart. Because um, I think it's an important lesson and a tough one to learn. Yeah, no, it's, it's hard not to take things personally. Well, it's awesome to talk to you again. Congratulations on um, on everything you've built, um, and and for even if it's just hurting the incredible or harnessing the incredible uh, volunteer efforts of lots of people out there, it's something to be very proud of. And um, it's great talking to you, man. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate you. And to anyone out there listening, you know, if you if you want to join our volunteer army, invisiblehandsdeliver.org is the way to do it. And I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you. Welcome to Finding Home. I'm Scott Harris, your host. Here, we start with a simple question. What does home mean to you? For 20 years, I've been immersed in the residential properties that speak to buyers and sellers in New York City. And I've discovered that home is much more than brick and mortar. Home really means discovering your true calling. I speak with passionate entrepreneurs, creators, and leaders about what drives and inspires them to follow their dreams and makes the world a better place. You know, I started this podcast because I wanted to celebrate people who have found their passions and put them to use in a number of different ways. For this episode, I got to sit down for a second time with Liam Elkind, and it happens to be Mother's Day week, when, of course, moms should be celebrated Every week, every day, this is a really fun episode to share. Um, by the way, a quick shout out to Cecile Kerr, who is a member of my team, who had originally introduced me to Liam two years ago as we were looking for uplifting stories amidst, amidst the quarantine for our Instagram live series. But Liam answered the question that a lot of people ask themselves, how can one person make a difference? You know, What makes Liam special to me is that he figured it out a little earlier than most people do during his sophomore year of college. Um, as the pandemic rolled in, he launched Invisible Hands with an idea that it might be nice to help older people who were at risk with tasks, you know, helping older people while they were hunkered down. And we talk about the genesis of the organization, how it really became an organization. And what I love about all of these conversations I get to have is, is that we learn about the iterations, the tweaks, the idea of 
having an idea, throwing it out there, jumping over a ravine and building the bridge as you go. Um, so many people look at amazing things like what Liam did and his family and his team, everything that they built, how he ta- had to take time off of college to lean all the way into this. They look at his Yale degree. They look at winning his winning the Rhodes Scholarship and think, well, he just had it all figured out. Um, but what they don't realize is just how messy and how incremental all of this work is along the way. The insights, the figure it out as you go mentality that's true of almost every initiative, every business, and really every life. We talk about here about some of the luck that helped Invisible Hands blow up, which is really great, including a helping hand from actress Blake Lively and even Bernie Sanders. And bringing it back to politics, we also talk about what seems to be at the heart of Liam's why, which is just standing up and taking action in the face of setbacks, uh, it, certainly in politics, and he, when he saw some things that he didn't really like. And really, one person can make a real difference by taking a stand. And even more than that, we talk about public-private partnerships, which to me seems like the most effective way to get things done, taking the financial resources of public institutions and adding in the flexibility and ingenuity of people like Liam. It's a fun conversation. Liam's amazing. By the way, offline, we talk about the pronunciation of his last name, which is it was really fun. You know, I have an easy last name to pronounce, Harris, but others don't. Is it Elkin? Is it Elkind? Uh, it's, his family doesn't agree about it, with it which is really funny, um, but probably expected. Families don't disagree about a lot of things, but he's a great guy. It was a thrill to get to talk to him. I hope you enjoy learning a bit more about the birth and growth of Invisible Hands, and I hope it inspires you. Thanks a lot.